Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday, of course, is a weekly show where each and every single week I focus on exposing injustice in our nation's broken criminal justice system. And we might have some new listeners this week. We are running some ads on Part of the Problem with Dave Smith. And if this is your first time listening, this is only one of our shows. We also have a show every Monday hosted by Mark Clare. He interviews a lot of leading libertarian minds. He hosts roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. We have the only libertarian variety show with three unique shows every single week. And today's show of Felony Friday is the 101st episode. So that means you'll be able to find the show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash FF101. I'll link to everything we talk about, different articles. That's also where you can find the bio for my guest today, Dr. Cassandra Little. She has an incredible story to share. She faced a lot of injustice, a lot of difficult circumstances that she had to overcome at the hands of the federal government. Now, before I get to my interview today with Cassandra, I just want to tell you guys about Health Excellence Plus. Health Excellence Plus is an incredible free market alternative to your standard corporate health insurance. You can find out more about Health Excellence Plus at lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today on Felony Friday is Dr. Cassandra Little. Dr. Little found herself the subject of an investigation by the IRS and Medical Fraud Unit, which this investigation began back in 2010. Ultimately, she was indicted in 2013 on 38 counts of healthcare fraud and money laundering. Cassandra was essentially legally forced to plead guilty to the original indictment for the 38 counts of fraud and money laundering, which totaled the amount of $82,000. In the end, the guilty plea in the end in the end the guilty plea resulted in a sentence of 33 months of incarceration in a federal prison camp which began October 14, 2013. On September 8, 2015, Dr. Little was released to a halfway house in San Francisco. Cassandra, welcome to Felony Friday. Oh, thank you so much, John. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for taking some time to uh, to share your story. And this interview, this show is really all about giving people who have experienced the criminal justice system, who've uh, experienced some injustice in the criminal justice system, to share their story. And normally a starting point that I like to start with for my audience's benefit uh, to get to know you a little bit better is to start with sharing some background information. So I think a good place to start would be if you could share your background, where you grew up, where you went to school. Sure. I actually grew up in East Palo Alto, California, um, which um, at the time had one of the highest murder per capita rates 
um, doing, and I think it's still up there. Um, I was raised by my maternal and paternal grandparents. I used to go back and forth because both my parents, my mother was addicted to drugs and my father had his own challenges. So my sisters and I were raised by our grandparents and I'm the oldest of five sisters, actually. Um, so my, my childhood, I was filled with, uh, many challenges and some that forced me to, you know, grow up sooner than I needed to. Um, and, um, so a lot of the times I spent, um, I went to school and, um, I went to high school, it was called Miller Atherton in California. Um, I was bused. That was when busing started, um, which was kind of incredible for me. That's when I kind of pushed my love for basketball and sports of all kinds. And that's actually what kind of got me out of the hood, so to speak, was athletics. Um, How did athletics get you out of the hood? Um, I, I went to college on a basketball scholarship. And um, I started off at Cal State Fullerton. Actually, so straight from the hood to Orange County, which was a culture shock. <laughs> um, I was there for two years in 80. I left there in 84. I just was having a hard time academically. And I transferred to a smaller school called California Baptist. It's called California Baptist University now in Riverside, um, California, where I also had a basketball scholarship. And that's where I got my bachelor's. That's very cool. I actually used to live in Riverside, California for a little over a year. Back in oh yeah 2008 it's a uh, it's a it's a nice area um, yeah so what position did you play point guard I'm five four I'm short I was tenacious I played point guard there um, graduated the next year I became I was like the grad assistant because I needed an extra semester to graduate and um, my coach there who's still a very good friend who actually visited me in prison um, he um, Gave me, afforded me the opportunity to be a grad assistant so I can graduate. I graduated from there and um, I had a friend who was on my team. Her name is Laura Lewis, who was working at this place called Child Help USA. Because at the time I thought it was going to be an attorney, go figure. Um, I really liked law. I had a lot of family members who were involved in the law on the other end of it. Um, and so I went and I was getting my bachelor. I got my bachelor's in criminal justice. And so I needed some work. And she told me about this place called Child Help USA, which was in Beaumont, California. And that pretty much changed my life. Um, it was a facility where um, kids, it was like a huge orphanage um, where kids who, um, you know, who um, didn't have parents, who were taken away from their parents, were um, housed and schooled. Everything was on the campus there. And I worked there for like two and a half years. So this this experience at, you said it was called Child Help USA? Yes. What, uh, did, did that set you on your career path then from there? Yes, yes. Right from there I knew um, um, Number one, it was just natural. It was a natural. It just it was a natural place of for me to be in regards to working with at risk at risk youth. It was familiar to me. Um, I had I, I kind of identify my innate talent um, where people felt kind of fearful and didn't like to go to work. I loved it. Um, I loved the kids. Um, 
And that kind of, that, that started me off. Um, from there, I um, went from another friend that I play basketball with who lives here in the Dayton, Nevada. Uh, she um, was like, you should come um, to Nevada. You know, I was like, mm, okay, I'll try. Let me, let me see if I can find a job. And from there, I um, found a job at a place called Children Behavioral Services, um, where I worked with the same thing, kids who had severely mental health issues and um, were in an out-of-home placement. So I, you know, I, tra- I went there. I worked there for two years. And at the same time, I was like, you know, I think I want to get my master's. Um, I have this, this thing where I'm, I'm, you know, a lot of people say I'm an overachiever, and I am. Um, I just think that there's no height to where you can, what you can do um, if you want to do it. And so I, I got my master's in social work. Um, as I was getting my master's in social work and, you know, traveling around and, and working with a lot of these kids and seeing in these facilities, I, I decided, you know, I was like, you know what, I want to open my own program. And so um, that's what I did. So how, how long after you got your master's in social work until you decided you wanted to open your own program? Was there? Well, yes, there was a, it was about a, a five year um, in there because I wanted to get my clinical license and that takes another three years <laughs> after your master's. Um, so I, um, I became a, a licensed clinical social worker. And at that point I was planning for it. Um, I, I kind of knew the model I wanted to use. I wanted to use a humanistic model. I didn't want to, a lot of, a lot of agencies use point systems. You know, we kind of train kids to, to go into prisons and I didn't want to use that. Um, and so I, I had my model, model, model all set and ready to go. And I, I ended up opening up my first home in 2002. Okay. T- 2002, you said first home. So you opened yes. multiple homes. Yes. Um, and 2002 was my first group, my first call it therapeutic foster care home. Cause it's typically kids who are out of institutions or in hospitals or just hard to place, so to speak. So yeah, I opened up my first um, home and I had started off with two kids. It was a sibling group. It was a brother and sister who were teens. Um, and it just went crazy from there. Um, I had that house was full within two weeks. I had six kids by within two weeks. Um, and I was like, oh, my gosh. So um, at that time, I was like, OK, because uh, I have this thing where I never wanted to say no, because if 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 I was called, it was I was the last I was like the last last chance, you know, so um, I never wanted to say no. So at that point, I was like, OK, I spoke with some of my family members and that were you know, I was the only one in Reno at the time. I spoke with some of my family members and say, hey, you guys want to come and help me with this? You know, particularly my sisters. I had an aunt um, and um, and some, you know, some friends. And we got together and developed kind of uh, from my formulated a bigger plan for my plan. And Ujima Youth Services took off from there. So what what is the process just just so for my own understanding and I'm sure for the listeners understanding what what is the process for someone to get placed in in one of your homes how was that facilitated how do the is it government agencies reaching out to you Okay or? Now this this was pretty interesting so from the period time that I opened from 2002 to 2006 I, most of my placements were from the state 
and the county. What happened in 2006, which kind of caused a big, you know, which I, I say is not the main cause of what has happened to me, but is that the, the state of Nevada went to where <clears throat> they they put the feds in charge of everything. So um, instead of having it where this where it was local community based, where you know the kid, because Reno is not very big, um, it was the it was the federal government is who we had to get approval for um, to place to to place to place a youth, which was kind of um, crazy and chaotic. So when we first started, I would get a call from a social worker. Typically, it's from the social services. All of the youth that were in my care um, initially were were um, guardian, the Washoe County Social Services or the state of Nevada Nevada was their guardian. So those were my placements. In um, okay. so, 2000, so, so ahead, what, what was like the, uh, did that present some challenges from going from the, the state placement model to the federal model? Like what was the, what was the biggest difference there? Well, the biggest, there were a lot of big difference, a lot of challenges. Um, because like I said, you're not, not knowing the kid. And when you went, when we went to Medicaid funding it, the government funding it, they use a medical model. It's straight across. It has nothing to do with a child's needs. Um, and a medical model states that at some point you're supposed to get better, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if, if a kid's in care, they're in the out-of-house placement, they, they have, there's no, con- we have no control of if they get better or not, if they go home or not. So it was, it's really like, and now they're finding that that model just disrupted so many kids' lives and family lives. Um, and so they're making, here in Nevada, I know they're making changes. They've gone back to the old model um, of where they, the I'm sorry, model? the old model is where they fund it. Okay. They fund it. And so you're not dealing with the government because not only was my agency wasn't the only agency that I I, in Nevada, Reno, Nevada, I because I was like one of the first. I had the most extreme consequences, but um, many after me, after my agency, a lot of agencies started falling off. Uh, So so how how did you how did the funding work for all of us to, to run these houses? Well, um, initially, um, it was, you get paid when, when I first started was you get, I was a higher level home, so it'll go by rate and higher level just meant that, you know, you had some kids who were like either on med- were medication who had some, you know, disruptive behaviors in school, you know, um, couldn't be managed in a lower level home, like kind of a mom and pop home, you know? So my group homes were, were what I call ship staff. They weren't mom and pops homes. So um, and so it, uh, it could be like, okay, this, this child is having these, these many issues. So your rate could be, um, $60 a day. Um, and so that's how you were paid Medicaid. When Medicaid came on, when the federal government came in in 2006, they, um, they were like, okay, we're going to pay for your, the room and board at a, a lower rate. And then you have to bill separately with, for, you know, their clinical needs, which caused a lot of problems because how do you define a clinical need? Um, and so that was that was always a, an issue. That was always a challenge and still is a challenge, to be honest, because some people are still using that model. Um, and so um, and so you would bill instead of just having one streamlined billing format, you would have maybe a menu of, of services you would have to bill for it. 
which was crazy. And so I always stuck to just because I'm like I said, I'm pretty conservative and reluctant when the government got involved. You know, like I was tell people I was a child. I was a welfare offspring. So I I never wanted the government in my life um, for a lot of reasons. Um, And so, you know, I always use just three services. I would not be actually I underbuild a lot of times because I didn't I just it was just too convoluted. Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking of like the amount of work to to manage that from an administrative oh, standpoint. Oh my gosh. You so you become top heavy. You know, when I first started, I that's what I'm saying, you you become really top heavy because you really had to have someone who would just do your billing. And that's what happened as time went on. We had to otherwise you spend your whole time doing your billing and not really working on servicing or you know meeting the needs of the youth or the families that you're working with mm-hmm. so, so, so the, the model itself is causing you to direct your energies away from what you're supposed to be doing and spending spending time on of all of this yep. administrative work exactly exactly because you you have to be sure to drop as we see as I know now um, dot your eyes and cross your T's when you're dealing with the government Um and so um, that that was just it was hectic. I mean, I, I, it's it's really hard to explain how hectic that was that period was, and still is for some people who are still dealing with that. Um, and that and really want to provide a service to to um, to families and youth and communities. You know, like I told people, I've never got into this for money. Um, you don't get into social work for money. Right. But um, and so it's it be, it just became just crazy. It just was a crazy, crazy process. And at the same time, trying to make sure you meet the needs of the youth, you know, because by the time I closed, I had 64 youth in my program. Um, 64 over 64. Across across how many different houses? No, at at the end I had, um, when they closed me in 2010, I had 64 youth. I had 22 who were over the age of 18. So we call that a transitional meaning that they were out of the county but still needed service. Um, and then I had um, 40 who were under the age of 18 okay. that, had, that were displaced. Um, so it was pretty crazy. Crazy period, John. Crazy period. It's, it's, and, it sure sounds like it. I mean, Oh, yeah. So at, at what point in time does, do you start getting investigated by the IRS? Well, you know, you never know when it starts, right? So, in uh, 2010, IRS and um, the Medicaid fraud unit uh, walked walked through my my business doors. Initially, they weren't. They, they initially they asked for my brother in law, who was my um, CFO at the time. And so, you know, I'm like, what the heck? You know, I'm not. And I've always been an open book. I've always every year we have an audit. I, we always perform a self audit. We had a, a state audit, um, and so I, you know I've always been transparent. Which you know I tell people when you're dealing with the feds, be careful. Only give them what they ask for, um, because they'll make they'll find something that you know you don't intend. So you know I'm just like, well, I'm I'm not worried, you know. Um, and so they came in 2010 is when it started. Um, about three months later. Well, I think it was like April 2nd, I re- 2010, I received a letter um, from the Medicaid unit saying they were they were freezing my funds. And at this time, like I said, I have 64 youth in my care. I'm like, OK, um, 
you know, I've, you know, I've, I, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do, and no one else in this community had been through that, so they didn't, you know, everybody just kind of was like lost, you know, and so, um, so you know, I, you know, I'm rushing around because I'm a fixer. I'm like, okay, I need to fix this, you know, uh, and so I, you know, I try to, uh, you know, contact Medicaid, and they're like, oh, we can't talk to you, and so then I was like, okay. I need to, uh, I probably need to look at, you know, meeting with what the county and the state um, to see what's happening, you know, because I have all these, I have all these kids and I have a, I had about 70 staff. I was a big program. Um, you know, you, you can't, and I, you know, you can't just freeze funds, but they can, <laughs> and they did. And so, um, I met with the county and the state and they were like, yeah, we've been contacted. We're going to, you know, we, we think you need to make plans to move the kids. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm still like in shock. Like I said, I'm a fighter. I've been a fighter my whole life. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to. Some of my kids I've had for the whole in, entirety, you know, um, I'm not going to, you know, I was like, I'm not just doing, I'm just not going to give the kids up, you know, like that. This is their home, you know, Um and so they were like, nope. So next thing I know, I received another letter from the county to state. And then from Medicaid, it wasn't just that we're freezing your funds, that your contract is terminated as of May 20th. And all kids had to be removed from my program. And that's when I kind of just went black. Uh, I just kind of, I, I just, you know, I was numb for forever. So I'm, I'm assuming it, it was around that point in time when you realized that you could be in some serious trouble with the federal government here if they're freezing your funds and they're shutting you down. Exactly. And still I didn't hear nothing. You know, I, I really didn't have anything concrete. And, you know, I know a lot. Of, I've, I've been in this town a long time, been a professional in this town, been involved in a lot of boards and so much. But, so I know a lot of people, you know, and I was like, you know, so people were calling me here. They were hearing things. You know, the IRS is really trying to push for an indictment. And I'm like, based on what? You know, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to grasp. Because when you don't know what you're fighting, you know, you, you don't know what direction to go. You know, you didn't know. So, like I said, this started in 2010. I didn't, my program was closed May, May 2010. I didn't get indicted to 2013. I had three years of this uncertainty. I wouldn't do anything. For the first year, I didn't leave my house. I just felt like I was being watched. And I was. They have pictures of, of my house, which is very conservative. I mean, I'm. You know, I, I just was not the person they wanted me to be. I didn't have like a big mansion on the golf course. Um, I lived by my group homes, by my kids in the neighborhood they lived in. Um, I didn't have no fancy car. I had like a Dodge. Uh, I didn't take no big, huge trips. So they couldn't they couldn't create that narrative. Um, and so for three years, I kind of dealt with the uncertainty of what was going on. Uh, and, I, you know, I just sat here and waited. What was it like when the indictment came down? Well, when the indictment came down, to be honest, I was angry. I received the indictment and actually the IRS agent, because at this time I'm becoming, you know, familiar with the agent. Just like he's investigating me, I'm investigating him. Um, his name is, he was young. It was his first two years. His name is Landon Tishner. I don't care about saying his name. Um, he said mine all over this town forever. Um, and, you know, I know that he was in that office just pushing for it and pushing for it for the past over the three years, you know. Um, and so um, he actually came with the young um, 
Medicaid fraud unit guy, I forgot his name, and served me my indictment in my hand, which, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, you know, like I said, I'm very, very courteous. I'm like, you know, and I knew it was coming um, because what happened was, okay, here's the like switch. I had my major program, which had my 64 youth, which was called Ujima Youth Services. In 2000 and what was it? Uh, gosh, three about 2010, no, 2007. I had started a small program with a friend of mine who had um, MR clients that were developmentally disabled, and they were coming of age and didn't have anywhere to go, and so um, nobody would take them, and they couldn't live completely on their own. So we had started a smaller program called um, Hill Little. And so, and she was older, um, older church lady. Okay. So, um, and this program only had about 20, 20 kids in it, you know, and it had been gone, like I said, three years, about three, three and a half years. Um, and so, you know, I, I pretty much just kind of um, helped develop that program. We had staff that did all the, the services and so so forth. And she handled all the financial stuff on that end, on that program. And so when my indictment came, here's the irony. It had nothing to do with Ujima Youth Services, which was my major program. I mean, which, you know, I had forever and had probably the biggest, you know, it is the biggest, biggest program. It was on Hill Little. Um, and so I was kind of, I was baffled, to be honest. I was like, okay, because when they, when they, you know, when they had came to my office and raided my office, they took all of my Hill Little, my Ujima Youth Services information. But I just think it was too much paperwork. And, and it was just, it was ironclad. It was too hard for them to prove anything with that over the three years. So they switched to Hill Little. And what they found with Hill Little in my indictment was, like I said, my indictment, my original indictment, which I pled guilty to, was for $84,000. And there was checks that were written out that were written to, like, guardians mm-hmm. to provide services for their their kids. Um, and, with, and the Medicaid, what they said to me was within the Medicaid – um, chapter 400, which is the manual I've read in a million times, which is the thickest book um, ever. Um, there's like eight words, one line that says guardians cannot be reimbursed for services of their kids. And that's what they indicted me on. Um, and so that's what the 80. So the 84,000 was my initial indictment. So, so they can't be reimbursed for services, but could they... Like, how else would they pay for for services? Well, no, they can't. What happened was that the Hill Little, that, that program is that we created, was a program so that the kids would stay in the, in the, in the home. So instead of pulling a kid and putting them in my program or um, hiring another staff to go provide the, the mm-hmm. services, what we did is we brought the parents, the, the parents in and we trained them. Okay, so one of the parents had to be home at all times and we trained them to provide the services. They learned about the meds, everything that my staff went through for training, they went through. And so they were paid as they were 1099. They were paid as contracted staff. So Medicaid and chapter and it's in there. It's written. So I can't complain about that. 
the um, chapter 400 says that a guardian cannot be reimbursed for. And that's so that's the line out of this big manual that they indicted me for um, with that Hill Little, not my major program, which was Ujima Youth Services. They did it off of Hill Little after three years of searching. I wonder what their what, – so what is their thought process as to why they wouldn't want you – uh, you know, paying the guardians if you're bringing them in and and training them to, you know, to to care for their their own children. Um. Well, what they're what they're stating. Well, there's there's two things. What they're stating is that the service, the billing, which if for Hill Little, I didn't even do the billing, but that's neither here nor there. The billing states that I'm supposed to provide the service, which that's not how it's read. But that's that's. That's what Medicaid said. That's what the, they testified to. That's not how I read it. I could hire staff. I could hire clinical staff, at least I thought, to provide mm-hmm. the service. But So they were saying, no, that's what you were supposed to do. So they were saying that all those for the, the 84000 the way the way they did the indictment was every time a check was written to reimburse the parent, they called that fraud. They called that fraud. Okay. And that's all. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. And... Like if I did, a, we wrote a check for some time. We were like reimbursed for school fees. And when people, that's what I said, it's it's so easy to, they, they can create, they're very creative. <laughs> and so, because I keep all this because, you know, people have a tendency of not believing me. I have it all written. Is that it, it, would, it could be a, a $200 check and then it's fraud because it went through the bank. Well, like I said, I typically did not handle the financial one time my the business my business partner was gone and I wrote like four checks I think so those they used those four checks to, to you know to to tie me into it um, also in regards to the money laundering I know many of you are facing major decisions with your health care right now and I want to make sure that you know about an amazing alternative to your standard corporatized health insurance known as health excellence plus. Health Excellence Plus is an incredible program that helps you keep medical costs under control by taking charge of your own health care and not leaving all the decisions about what doctors you see, and what procedures you need or don't need up to some corporate bureaucrat. Along with providing 24-7 access to medical professionals, tax-deferred health savings accounts, and preventative care, Health Excellence Plus empowers you to finally take control of your health care. To learn more, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health or call the special hotline for Lions of Liberty listeners at 855-290-4447. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. So your, your business partner was indicted as well? Yes. So, and she, like I said, the elderly, the nicest lady in the world. I mean, just pure as heart. Uh, um... And so, yeah, she's like 70 something. <laughs> and so they they indicted her as, as well. So, you know, when, when the indictment came, that was the beginning of the game. Um, because, you know, I'm looking at it, and like I said, I'm relatively smart. I know I'm not going to win. I know they have a 98 point something, something percentage of winning. So I'm like, you know what? Um, you know, you know, I got a public defender, and she was like, you know, Dr. Lee, I'm going to tell you right now, this is not about the truth. So it's about, you know, what they can prove. And so I'm like, well, you know, you know, here, all I can tell is my truth. I don't know what else to do. I don't know any other way to, to operate. Um, and so 
they came back and they, they offered me a plea for less time, but I had to agree to a one point something million dollars, which meant that they're saying the whole entirety of the program for three years is ill-gotten funds. Um, and I refused that. I was, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm not agreeing to that, you know. Um, and at this time, you know, our, our my business partner had she had got herself an attorney um, and. Um, you know, and I had, like I said, I had a, a public defender who was most helpful, to be honest, um, in this case. They, I was like, I'm not agreeing to that. So then he came back to another, with another one, the prosecutor, and he said, this is the last one I'm going to offer. And it was for 800 thousand. I was like, I'm not agreeing to that. I did not steal $800,000. Now, I was raised by grandparents. If I did something, I'm the first person to agree, hey, I did something. Um, I was like, I'm not agreeing to that um, $800,000, you know, I, you know, talked to my family, you know, I was a single parent, my partner at the time just couldn't handle it, she left. Um, so I had my son. And, you know, I was like, hey, you guys may have to take care of him, but I am, they gonna have to take it out my behind. I am not agreeing to that I stole this money for a lot of reasons, you know, number one, I didn't want to have to be beholden to that for the rest of my life. And so, um, so I refused the plea deal, but my business partner accepted it. And so they offered her less time to testify, you know, you, people say against me, but once they get you, you, you all, it's, it's, you, it's us against them. It's, you know, I, didn't, I have no ill feelings against her at all. Um, um, cause one of us was going to do more no matter what, that's why they like two or three or more people. I know that I I know it's a game. So I honestly, to be honest, I told her, say what you ever you need to say. I thought really that they would let her off, but she ended up getting time also. But so she agreed to it. Um, and at my discovery, they had her testify um, to. Um, my discovery was like two and a half hours. It took forever. Um, testify to the fact that, oh, yeah, we planned and schemed to. um you know, to, to steal, I think at that time it was like, they lowered hers to like 600 or something thousand dollars. By then her, her plea deal had been lower. And so, but, but, um, you know, I still refused. So then that they say that that's not accepting responsibility. So, um, they tried to take, you know, two points from me for that. What, what do you mean? Take um, two points. Well, on the with the federal guidelines, there's points. If you accept responsibility, you get, you know, it's a point. It's, a, it's all a numbers game. That's why I didn't really want to accept the money amount because that once you get to a, a, a certain amount of money, that's it correlates with the amount of time they can give you, they can recommend. Um, and so, um, and so the points, the the points put you in another bracket of time being served or a time served. Cause, um, and so I, they tried to say I didn't accept responsibility, but, um, but, um, when it came down to sentencing, the, the judge didn't, he didn't accept that part. So they were recommending 60 months and I got 33. So the prosecutors recommending 60 months and the judge pretty much gave me pretty much cut mm-hmm. it in half. Um, Yes. So tell tell us a little bit about your time your time in prison. Um, and you started writing your blog like thirty days or something before you went in, right? 
Yes. And your, yes. your blog is, I just I, want to um, say to, to the listeners real quick, the blog is the, uh, it's the felonist PhD, right? Yes. That, a felony? I'll, I'll um, link to it, link to it on the show notes page. It's the felonist PhD dot wordpress.com. And, uh, yeah, just t- tell us a little a little bit about the motivation and, and why you decided to do that. Well, like I said, one of one of the things is uh, I'm I'm a researcher, and I you know I was fortunate enough I had the opportunity to kind of plan myself, plan my plan my time to go into prison. I couldn't find anything. Um, everything was male oriented. You know, I I just I I couldn't find any information, and just I really wanted to. Um, being a clinician, I'm, like I said, uh, I was I have been, I have been through a lot, but that is never that was the closest I've ever been to killing myself, and that's honest. Um, and because I felt alone and isolated, and so I was like, you know what? I don't want any other woman to ever feel this way, especially a mother. No one can understand the impact that has on a mother. And like I, I was a professional mother, so I took my parenting seriously, you know. And so I was like, you know. I'm just going to write about this. And I'm a, I'm a relatively private person. I was like, I'm just going to put it all out there um, from the beginning of how this process, because the process prior is the most emotionally traumatic part you can ever go through. Because if you're not familiar with the system, like I have family members who were who are telling me, oh, you're going to be all right. You're going to be OK. It's the feds. You're just going to the camp. But for me, you know, number one, I'm very prideful. I worked hard not to be in that situation. Um, and here I was. Uh, it really plays on your your psyche. And so um, my motivation was to let people know that we're going to be impacted by this system, made, particularly women, that you are not alone. And, yes, it hurts, but you can get through it. And I wanted to – I wanted to sh- and it gave me a way to kind of – um, verbalize some of my angst. Um, because when you see the words USA versus Cassandra Little, it's, if it's, it's like unsurmountable. It's like, you're, you know, you're, it's like the talking about Goliath, <laughs> you know? And so it, it kind of gave me a voice. So that was my, that was my, um, reasoning for doing the blog. And I started and I did a countdown. Um, and, and because I, I had, um, like I said, 64 kids at the time of closing, but I have had over 200 kids in my program. So I had a lot of people who who this has impacted. And I had 70 staff people who were unemployed um, and my family members. So, so it kind of impacted my whole community and anybody who was tethered to me. And so um, I wanted to be able to give people, tell people what was going on without having to, all, without having to really be face-to-face with people all the time. And while I was going into camp, I wanted to let them know that I was okay. And were you, so you were able to continue writing while you were in camp, right? Yes, yes. I I have a friend who um, I would write and send um, information to her, and she would post it. I was very careful because I know the process. Um, I only wrote about how I was feeling. The other stuff that I other stuff I wrote and I sent, and I have her help for me. I have like four binders of blogs here. Um, that I'm I'm actually writing a book. I'm working with a writing coach on putting that together. Um, and so I was very careful in what I put out um, in the blogs. It was mainly, you know, emotional stuff. Kind of, and I would try to put stuff so if people were coming in, you know, they would know like, hey, go renew your driver's license <laughs> before you come. Um, 
wire yourself some money before you come because you won't have you won't have no access. So I was trying to give some just some skills that people can bring in. Um, they can do prior to um, surrendering or um, coming into the camp. Yep. Uh, previous guest on this podcast, Holly Kuhlman, uh, she mm-hmm. uh, she wrote, she blogged during her time in prison, and ultimately it really ended up getting her thrown in solitary confinement for telling honestly what happened during a, a prison riot um, and talking yes. about other other ways that she was she was mistreated. Even writing and and doing it within confinements, I mean that I mean that that is a risk, but you know I think that's a that's that's a risk. Obviously, you were willing to take to to let to let to let everybody know, and you probably have more people uh, than normal because of of your background and all these kids that you've helped who were interested in, in your well being and and wanted to follow along. So um, yeah, that was uh, I'm, I'm sure there were a lot of people that uh, that were reading that and. Uh, and we're thankful that you kept them kept them updated. So I, I wanted to ask you your your time in prison. If you had to describe it in in a sentence or or two sentences, what what was that time like for you? Oh my gosh, um, it it, it was an empty space. Um, like I I was. I was honestly baffled that we have this kind of process in our country today. And that's not being extreme. Um, like I said, I, I, I was able to view, view things from a very, you know, educational and clinical perspective. And I, it got to where it was not even about my story anymore, um, about what our system does to, some of the women who have been in 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, um, just sitting there. I, it was very disheartening. Um, I, I, I tell people I'll never, I'll never view my country the same again. I, I'm not going to ask you to use any names, but can you provide an example of, of one of the women who was in there serving for, for 10 years, some of, the, you know, some of what they were going through? Well, I have like one one friend. Her name is Darian Edson. She's in there. She just filed an appeal. Actually, I just went and he- heard her oral, oral argument. She received, I think, almost ten point five years for what they call it conspiracy, but it was mainly because she, she didn't take a plea deal uh, in regards to her boyfriend's uh, case, and um, and she lost and. Never been in trouble. She's an attorney, um, actually. High. It was like the highest amount of time giving in this in Sacramento's the state of California for a bankruptcy um, fraud case, which wasn't her bankruptcy. It was her her boyfriend's bankruptcy fraud case. But she sat in on a meeting that was set up by the feds, and so she was implicated. And they wanted her. You know, like I said, they like two people because it makes their case easier. And so um, she ended up fighting it. They had offered her like six months in a misdemeanor, but you know, you you just feel like, oh, this is no way. This is not going to happen. And she lost and got ten years. God, crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, and you just so it got to where you know you you started hearing those stories. Like I said, 
I have, I've had the best of a worst situation. I, there was another lady in there, Bernice Brown. She's from Detroit and similar. Hers is Medicaid um, fraud. She had a home health program and I think they gave her like 12 years, same, same kind of case like mine. Um, and I was, you know, I just, you just hear it over a nurse in there. Um, you just hear those stories over and over again. And I'm not saying that there should not be consequences. Even in my case, I'm saying, okay, look, it's just the extremity into the, the, the extent that the government will go to create a narrative about you that just does not represent who you are and what you do and what, what has happened, um, well, it, is the hard part for me. One thing, when you talk about fraud, I mean, when you when talk about someone's defrauded, you know, something's being stolen. I mean, some uh, property or, or, or money. Um, so, in a situation like like what you went through, um, nothing was stolen directly from a victim. And and if it and, and if it was to that extent, I mean, the only remediation should be having to repay that money. Um, so. Yeah, putting someone, locking someone in in prison. I don't see how that would do anything to uh, to remedy the situation. But that's the that's the world we live in today. And yes, and as I mean, as as you know, I'm sure the the prisons are not set up to to reform people, to help people, to help people once they do reintegrate oh, no. back into society to be successful. It's the exact opposite. No, I and you know, like I said, I. I was fortunate. I, I, I had a plan going in and I was, this, I knew what I was going to focus on. I was going to focus on myself for once. And, um, you know, a lot of the women in there, there's, you know, the biggest program they have in there is GD. Well, a percentage of the women that was, you know, I taught in the education department. So that was a major deal, but you have someone like myself and you have like Darian, you sitting there there for 10 point some years. What is she going to do with herself? There's no, there's no clinical help. Um, there's no medical help. You're, I, I, I am, I'm telling you, I, I have, I wrote a blog that was called wheelchairs, um, canes and orthopedic shoes. There are so many old women just in there sitting, crocheting. I am not kidding you. Um, it's appalling. It is. A, it's heartbreaking. I mean, cause uh, yes. you know, those women in there, uh, on top of the fact that their lives have been, you know, completely thrown off track. Um, think about their families. I mean, these, these have ripple effects and it's, it's very troubling. Um, so based on the experience that you went through, um, if someone listening to this was either in the middle of, or maybe they're either about to go into prison or they're in the, the part where the waiting game, like you went through for, for several years before, for, th- for two or three years before getting indicted, what, what sort of, advice would you have for them? I would say, first of all, it's, um, you know, get, get, get involved in some counseling um, because it's very traumatic. And, and if you have kids or family members that are you're closely tethered to, have them part of that process. Um, and if, if you do have the opportunity to walk in, like I said, I was fortunate. I can, I walked into, you know, um, to prison Make sure that you've already have your doctor's appointments done because you're meant you're you will not get very good medical medical health help. Um, just try to have as many as your affairs in order as possible because you will not be able to do anything. You're very isolated from the world um, once you're in there. You won't be able to 
get anything done. If you if you have a business, you need to put an order, get it in order. Um, like with my son, I signed a temporary paperwork, custody paperwork, so my family would have an easy time, you know, with school and any medical. Um, so you want to put all that stuff in order um, to alleviate any of that stress. Because once you're in there, you know, just listening to the women that were in there, a lot of their stress were stemming from wanting to make sure everybody was okay on the outside. Did did you um, hire uh, or did you work with a, a prison consultant of any type before you went in? No, I didn't. I worked with, I like I said, I have a, a close friend who's a therapist. Well, she was an intern at the time I worked with. Did a lot of stuff with her. Um, read a lot of books. Um, I just kind of got my mind my mind right. I just went into a game time like I was, you know, you know. I was like, you know, once I decided, you know what, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm going to live. Then I I just did 100 percent of this what I need to do to keep myself going emotionally and kept my sense of humor. Um, you got to keep your sense of humor in there um, because the people their whole goal is to try to break you. Um, and, and, the, to remind you that you're an inmate, I was inmate four seven zero seven eight zero four eight, and they love saying that. Um, but I don't own it, you know, that's their number. And, um, and so you really got to get, make sure you go in with a strong mind. Um, I've seen a lot of capable women end up in what we call the pill line, um, getting, um, psychotropic medications for depression and they couldn't sleep. Um, and so, you know, I would say, you know, prepare yourself mentally and, and that you can do it. Just make it the challenge of your life. Um, and once you get in there, you're like, what in the heck is this? Um, it's nothing that you could ever think of <laughs> um, in your whole life um, experiencing. So... Yeah, well, that is uh, that's some great advice, and I want to thank you for coming on this show, Cassandra. I want to thank you for sharing your story. You know, hopefully, with this being out here now, this will reach other people and help other people who are dealing with uh, with similar situations. I want to give you the opportunity now to 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 plug or, or talk about anything that that you're working on, or give any uh, any parting words that that you'd like to share with my audience. Sure, I'm. Um, like you said, you already um, told about my blog space. I'm going to be having another. I stopped um, blogging on that for a year. I'm starting next year on a blog spot called The Happy Place. It's called Pain to Purpose. Um, and so that's going to be starting um, hopefully to, by mid-January. I'm also going to have a blog talk uh, station called The Happy Place. And I'm, I'm working on a book called The Happy Place, um, Pain to Purpose. And um, I do a lot of speaking um, and conferences. Um, I'm doing some um, a guest lecture at the univer university here. One of my friends, when this started happening to me, she's a professor and she started a class on mass incarceration. So I, I guest lecture with her because I can't get the university to hire me because I'm a felon now. So, um, so just... You know, just keep going from resilient to brilliant. That's 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 my motto. Um, and, uh, you know, I just want to accept anything less of myself. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Cassandra. Well, thank you for having me, John. And thanks for all you're doing. This is wonderful. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview today with Cassandra Little. Uh, there's something that I'm, now that I've, you know, I've passed 100 episodes and I feel like, 
you know, looking back on these episodes, looking back on a lot of the interviews I've had, a lot of the interviews I've had with with people like Cassandra, people who have suffered injustice, people who have spent time incarcerated behind bars and really fought through a struggle. And I want to do my best now going forward when I have someone on like Cassandra that has been through the struggle, I don't want to say a lot in the conclusion. So I'm just going to let this interview really stand on its own. Um, in the future, in future interviews like this, you know, there might be times where, you know, I have to add something or clarify something or, or, or give my view on, on some, uh, some aspect of it. But for the purposes of this interview, uh, my perspective, I don't think there's really much I should add. So I'm just going to say, if you guys enjoyed this, uh, please consider supporting the Lions of Liberty podcast. We can't continue to grow and continue to to reach out and advertise in other podcasts to try to grow our audience. Um, and we can't continue really to, to have this show in this format um, unless we have your support. And we've had some fantastic support from our Pride members. We have a, a growing group, Lions of Liberty Pride, members at the $25 monthly level, the $10 monthly level, the $5 monthly level. Of course, at the $25 level, you get a lot of free goodies. You get a uh, monthly conference call with us. And of, and of course, you get all the exclusive content at, uh, at $10. You don't get the conference call, but you still get some free goodies and you still get the content. At $5, of course, you get the exclusive content and that's what you get. So, And it is a lot of exclusive content. We produce normally more bonus content then we do our daily three shows. And we have some standard programs that we have going right now. We have our Conspiracy Theory Roundtable, which is once or twice a month. We have our Degenerate Gamblers Roundtable, which is every week. Uh, there's interviews that are released early. For example, if you were in the Pride, you know Mark Clare is going to be publishing an interview coming up with Ron Paul. Our Pride members have already heard that interview, an early release of the Ron Paul interview. So it's a great way to support the show and also get more content and get content before everyone else does. So it's a win-win, right? Everybody wins. You win. We win. Liberty wins. Why not? Join the pride. So other than that, guys, I mean, subscribe to the show. If you haven't subscribed, why not? Um, of course, we. Uh, of course, any uh, rating and uh, comments you can leave us on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those places help us out tremendously. And if you haven't joined the Lions of Liberty Forum, that's where it's all happening, man. That's what it's all about. This last week in the Lions of Liberty Forum has been freaking crazy with the uh, the Liberty Draft back and forth debate. And I'm recording this before the results are final, actually, on, on Wednesday night. And uh, things are getting pretty crazy. So it's, it's back and forth. There's been three different teams in the lead, and there's been a lot of... Uh, a lot of smack talked back and forth, but it's uh, it's all in good fun. And I think we're all starting to learn some of the perils of democracy. But you know what? The way I look at it, it's good as libertarians to learn how to win, how to win in this democratic process, because we're going to have to win here this way in order to advance the ideas of liberty. So come to the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just go to Facebook, punch Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top and join. It's free. We'll see you there. That's all I got for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.